If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. It's also there in your worship guide, Luke chapter 15. And uh, let me take a moment to just explain where we are going to go over the next few weeks. Uh, We're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the parable of the prodigal sons. Uh, The parable of the prodigal sons, it should be sons plural. It's not just a story about one son, but two Um, And then this parable is really going to serve as an introduction for our next series, uh, which is going to be looking at the book of Romans. Uh, Really, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans is is an an explanation or an expounding of the themes that we will find here um, over the next two weeks in this parable. And so Luke chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and it began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you would have for us this morning, to do whatever work you need to do in our inner being. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore, but Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So just like last week, we have another party. Um, actually, in Luke 15, there's a series of parables, and they all end with a party. We have the parable of the lost sheep. And when the lost sheep is found, there's a party. We have a parable of the lost coin. When the woman finds the lost coin... She throws a party. 
And now we have the parable of the lost son. And when the son is found, there is a party. It's as if Jesus cannot emphasize to us enough just how much his father wants to throw a party for us. We have a joyful father, one who wants to celebrate with us. Now, if Jesus were to tell this parable today, uh, maybe inside of a parking deck instead of the shores of Galilee, it would go something like this. There was a father who had two sons. The younger son could not take living at home any longer. He hated his dad. His dad was conservative, a goody-two-shoe, closed-minded. His older brother was even worse. He felt suffocated by them. So when it came time for him to go off to college, he saw it as his opportunity to get the heck out of there. He asked his dad to buy him a new Jeep, to send him off to the most expensive private school somewhere up north where he could live off campus in one of their brand new luxury apartments. He didn't care what it would cost his dad. Actually, he hoped it would cost him a small fortune. He hoped it would hurt. He couldn't wait to get away from his father and from his brother and go someplace more progressive, someplace more open-minded as to what life is really all about. And his dad, his, his dad was devastated when his son made these requests, and he could, he could see his son was so full of hate, so full of anger. But in the end, he gave his son everything he wanted. The father went and cashed in some mutual funds, took out a bunch of loans, registered the boy in school, bought him that sweet new Jeep, and his son left without even saying goodbye, let alone thank you. Well, predictably, the son, you know, he goes off to school, he goes to classes maybe for the first two weeks or so, but then he gives up. The only time he actually goes on campus is just to use the gym. Uh, he's partying every other night. He's hugely popular. Uh, he would often wake up uh, with a hangover in somebody's lawn. By the end of the year, he had failed out. He got a DUI, totaled his Jeep, emptied his bank account, maxed out his credit cards. He tried waiting tables so he could still keep the apartment, but eventually he lost that too. And so now he is penniless, without a place to stay, without any transportation, and without any friends because they're all still in school. So he's got no other options. He decides he's going to hitchhike home, ask if he could work for his father. Now, the older brother, we're going to look at him next week. Let's just say that the older brother stayed near, got a full scholarship to a good state school, stayed home to help run the family business, and is a deacon at church. He probably drove a Camry. <laughs> uh, the story could be told a hundred different ways, couldn't it? Because it's likely we all know a variation of these two brothers 
we likely heavily identify with at least one of these brothers. And that's one of the things that makes this story so timeless is we see this taking place everywhere. The story begins with the younger brother or the younger son. He goes to his father and he asks his father for his inheritance. Now, as the younger son, he would have received a third of his a third of all the wealth his dad had, his older brother would receive two-thirds for an inheritance. But they would only receive this after their father had died. To request that now is the younger brother's way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead already. Could you not just go ahead and die? Because I want your stuff, but I do not want you. This is a son who despises his father. Now, this was a shame-honor culture, and, and so a father who's, who's has that kind of confrontation with one of his sons, there's really only one way to respond to this insult. He would have been expected to verbally or possibly even physically abuse his son, probably slap him across the face, tell him, how dare you? You ingrate, you rebellious, good-for-nothing former son of mine, leave. That's what you would expect. That's how the father could save face. But, but instead, the father does something unimaginable. He looks at his son and, who has such anger and hate towards him and he actually grants him his every request. He knows, he knows if he just kicks his son out, he's likely never going to see him again. And because he loves his son so much, so much, he doesn't want to close any door that doesn't absolutely have to be closed. And so maybe if he gives him everything, maybe, just maybe, his son might someday return. And so he gives them everything, but it is absolutely going to cost this father. We read that he divided his property among his sons. Uh, now, every commentator you read is likely going to point this out, that the word there for property is not the usual word that you would find for property. It's an unusual word here. It's, it's the word bios. It's the word life. The father divided his life. He divided his life and he gave it to his son. You, you see, in this day, there were not banks. Uh, the vast majority of your wealth, it was tied up in your ancestral land. Uh, normally, the son's inheritance would have been to simply get to move in with dad and get part of the land later. But the son does not at all want to live by his father. He doesn't want that land. Dad, cash it in. Give me the wealth. I'm out of here. And the father does. And he allows his life to be ripped apart by the son, all in hopes of a future reconciliation. Now, even today, this would tear a family apart 
If one of my children came up to me and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Do you know how hard that would be? Even now, because I would have to say, you don't have much inheritance. Actually, your inheritance is that you get to take care of me someday. Um, but, uh, but, but the inheritance, it's, it's tied up in the house, in the land we have. I'd have to sell the house. I'd have to sell the land. We'd have to move someplace else. It would divide my life in order to give an inheritance now. But it would have devastated this father, but he allowed his life to be torn apart once again for the hope of future reconciliation. Now, this would have astounded the listeners of this parable. It would have astounded them because no father is like this. And Jesus said, that's right, no earthly father is like this, but my father is like this. This is what God is like. Uh, Did you know that the, the Romans actually struggled with how to categorize Christians? They didn't know what to think of them. They, they didn't think of them as religious. They actually called them atheists. The Romans first called the Christians atheists because when they looked at their views of this so-called God they worshiped, and then they look at everything they knew about the gods, they said, well, they're just atheists because their belief in their God is nothing like what we believe. That's what Jesus is putting forth here. There is no God like this. Let's look at what the son does here. He, He just takes the money and runs. This is him going off to Colorado to find himself. Maybe going off to New York to sow his wild oats. Going down to Florida to be a gator. Just throwing his life away. Uh, We'll look at this later when we get to Romans, but uh, this is Romans 1. Romans 1, if you remember what God's judgment is, God's judgment is giving us what we want apart from his presence. You have everything you want, including me not being with you. And it looks like everything you want, but what you find out is it will not turn out well. It's actually God's judgment. The son squanders off his inheritance on reckless living, and then a famine comes. Then he finds himself working on a pig farm. And then we read in verse 17 that he came to himself, or he came to his senses. Now, coming to your senses is the beginning of repentance. But coming to your senses is not something that you can manufacture. It's not something that you can do. It is something that is done to you. No one decides when to come to their senses. Um, If any of you have ever been knocked out cold before, I have. Uh, When that happened, I did not get to decide, I think I'll be conscious now. You, you just eventually come to your senses or somebody comes to you with a smelling salt there and, and wakes you up, but it's something that is done to you. And here we see God, it's this, this, this work of God in waking up this spiritually dead man. He's waking up, he's saying, who do you think sent the famine? Who do you think allowed your life to reach the bottom? Wake up! It's time for you to wake up. Look at yourself. 
Son, it's time to go home. Go home where you will find an abundance of bread. Now I want you to notice what this coming to senses looked like. When he came to his senses, he, he thought this. He had this thought. There is more than enough bread being offered at my father's house. In my father's house, there's an abundance. And then he compared that abundance with what he was currently experiencing. And that is what led him to repent. You see, repentance begins when you come to your senses and you realize that what you are experiencing is nothing compared to what the Father is offering. That's the start of repentance, that when you realize what you are experiencing is nothing compared to what your Father is offering, and it sobers you up. And we need to land here for just a moment because this is an important point. I mean, have there ever been times where you know, you've heard a sermon or you've, you've been reading your Bible and, uh, and you, you come across these unblushing promises of God? Uh, you, you come across verses like you know, we read to start the service, Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy, in thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or John 10, where Jesus says that he has come to give us life and life abundantly or life to the full. Or as we've looked at in the parables, how the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. Or it's like a treasure that you find in the field. And, and you read these things and you think, wow, look at what it looks like to be a child in the kingdom. It looks like a life that's that's filled with unbridled joy and peace. And so you realize these things, and then you look at your life, and you see the disconnect. They don't mesh. What God has said he is, who he has said he is, and what he will give you does not mesh with what you are experiencing in your life. And you begin to wake up. You begin to come to your senses. And in these moments, if you were to be honest with yourself, you would acknowledge that in the midst, in the midst of all your Netflix binging, in the midst of all the porn you've been watching, in the midst of your endless shopping, in the midst of your social media addiction, in the midst of your refusal to forgive and the anger that you have held on to towards somebody, in the midst of all that, you actually feel like you're only half alive. You know that this is not the life that God has promised. And, and you begin trying to reconcile the life that you have with the life that's promised, and this is God bringing you to your senses. Now, when this happens, don't blow it. Because remember, you coming to your senses is not something that you can do. It's something that God is doing to you. So God is working in your life, and it's a call not for you to make excuses, not for you to live into denial. It's a call for you to repent. 
to repent and to come home. Repent. Go back to your Father where there is more than enough bread. Most of us, we you know, we know kind of the basic facts about Martin Luther, father of the Reformation. 1517, he nails his 95 theses onto the door of a church in Wittenberg. But most of us don't know what that first thesis was. Um, the very first thesis that Martin Luther nailed up on there was that all of life is about repentance. All of life is about repentance. We usually think it was about indulgences and stuff like that. Well, no, his very first thing is all of life. All of the Christian life is about repentance. Because as a Christian, we should be quick to repent because we know on the other side of repentance, our Father throws a party. Joy always follows repentance. Back to the story. As the son is walking home, he's still a long way off. His father sees him, which means his dad's looking for him. His dad's hoping for his return. And when he finally catches that first glimpse of his son, he immediately runs to him. And now, once again, this would have astonished the people listening to this story because men did not run. The women of that day ran. Children of that day ran. Patriarchs do not run. But this patriarch lifts up his robes, bears his legs, and he runs as fast as he can to his son the moment he sees him. This is a father who does not care. He doesn't care what people think, but he cares about his son. And he runs to him. We have a father who runs to us. And when the father reaches his son, uh, he doesn't even allow his son to, to get his words in. He, he doesn't allow his son to talk about being a hired hand or anything like that. He just embraces him and he kisses him. And the Greek there is literally he, he collapses on his neck and he repeatedly kisses him. He is smothering his son with kisses. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a kid like that, and I happen to look out on the front porch and see him walking home in his tattered clothes, shoeless. I would have waited on the front porch. And as he started walking up those steps, I would have said, my, my, my. <laughs> look what the cat just dragged back in. And I would have, of course, assumed that there's only one reason he came back. He needs money. I mean, of course, you would expect that. Wouldn't you see that situation coming back? It's like, oh, he's just coming back to ask for more money. But notice, this father here does not even care why his son came home. He just cares that he came home. He came home. And the father doesn't make him grovel. He just runs and he kisses him. He's embracing him. He won't let him go. And the only reason he could do that in that moment is because he has been living out that moment in his head ever since his son lost. He hasn't been thinking, oh, when my son returns, I'm going to say this, this, this. All he's been thinking is this, I just want to hold my son again. I just want to kiss him again. And because he had been thinking that and praying that every day when he finally sees his son, he runs and kisses him. 
And then when his son repents, well, that's when the party gets started. Nothing, absolutely nothing, unleashes the joyous, lavish, celebratory love of the Father like repentance. He puts the best robe on his son, which would have been his. He immediately puts a ring on his hand, which would have been the the family signet ring, meaning you were once again established as my child, part of the family. And then he kills the fattened calf, which means the entire village is being invited to this party. That's what our Heavenly Father does when he sees us repent. Come to our senses, repent, and come home. He sees us in our tattered clothes, and he takes off his robes of righteousness, and he puts them on us. He sees us so full of shame, and he, he, he kisses us with his mercy and his grace. And then he puts his ring on our finger, and he says, you are my child. My child, welcome home. There is a ton that you can actually glean from this story. We have skimmed the surface. But I want to end by making sure you do not miss the main point of this story. It's simply this. We have a father who is willing to have his life torn in two so that he might not lose us. In the midst of our rebellion and hate, he allowed his life to be torn apart. But he did it so that we might repent and eventually come home where we would be greeted with open arms and smothered with kisses. And where he would look us in the eye and he would call us his child. So Jesus is asking us the question, will you come home? Pray with me, church. Jesus, we are thankful for this story you gave us because it teaches us of your love for us, your Father's love for us. It shows us that you are longing for us to come home where we'll be welcomed with open arms and the biggest party. For those who have gone off, for those in their, who in their rebellion have run away, in this moment, through your Holy Spirit, may they come to their senses. May they see that they are only half alive or possibly fully dead. And Lord, may they repent and come home. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.